Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Last week, two Australian journalists working in China, Bill Bertels and Michael Smith, abruptly fled the country with the assistance of the Australian government. Chinese authorities had questioned the two in relation to Cheng Lei, another Australian journalist working for a Chinese news agency who has been detained. They were subsequently sheltered by the Australian consulate and, after a brief diplomatic standoff, boarded flights out of the country. Their departure leaves no uh, journalists working for Australian media organisations in inside China for the first time since the mid-1970s. And this comes amid a broader crackdown by the Chinese government on press freedoms. Sophie McNeil is a researcher with Human Rights Watch and a former Walkley Award-winning investigative reporter with Four Corners, and she joins us today on the line. Thanks so much for being there, Sophie. No worries. Thanks for having me. And so how significant is it that there are no longer any journalists working for Australian media uh, currently in China? It's huge. I mean, this is the first time since the mid-1970s that there are no accredited Australian media journalists in the in China. There are Australians working for other outlets. People might remember Stephen McDonald, a former ABC colleague of mine who's now a bit of a star on the BBC. He does amazing work. He's still there. Um, but it is really concerning because th- th- this, what's happened now to Bill Bertels and Michael Smith must have other journalists. Um, on edge. And one thing that we have seen also is it's not just that Bill Bertels and Michael Smith were forced to leave, but China has also not issued new visas for journalists from the ABC and nine newspapers. So there are several correspondents who've been waiting in Australia trying to go and have been waiting for months and haven't got that approval. So getting information out of China now um, is going to be increasingly difficult and it's a really effective way for the Chinese government to avoid scrutiny. Yeah, and how does that compare to your experience? I mean, listeners might remember your reporting on the protest in Hong Kong and also you've reported on the persecution of Muslims in Xinjiang. I mean, did you experience similar difficulties with reporting on sensitive issues about China? Well, yeah, because they never gave me a visa, despite us applying numerous times. So we we were forced to cover the story of Xinjiang, which, you know, for people who don't don't know, this is where um, the Communist Party has arrested more than a million uh, Uyghur citizens. These are Muslim citizens, Chinese people who live in the north of China, and um, they've put them in uh, camps, re-education camps. So it's the largest incarceration of people on the basis of their religion since the Holocaust. I mean, it's absolutely horrific to think this is happening in 20. 20, and there's lots of Australian um, Uyghurs who, a lot of them live in um, uh, Sydney and Adelaide and Melbourne, and they've got family who are trapped there, not allowed to come back. People with Australian visas, even Australian passport holders um, who are forbidden from leaving this area. The UN has described Xinjiang as, as like akin to a prison, you know, so it's just horrific. And so, yeah, we, we requested permission from the Chinese embassy, could we please go, you know. Um, no, we, you know, we didn't have a hope, so we had to tell that story and verify all of that information information from the outside. And and after I did that story, I actually did go to Hong Kong, as you mentioned, not that long um, after we covered the Xinjiang story. And I was a little bit nervous because Hong Kong last year was, um, you know, increasingly becoming under the control of Beijing, under the Communist Party. People in Hong Kong had always enjoyed more freedom. And and what I'd say is that today um, I, I wouldn't go to Hong Kong. 
and 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 actually the director of Human Rights Watch, Ken Roth, was recently banned entry to Hong Kong, and um, a lot of human rights activists have recently had to leave the territory because under new legislation passed by Beijing, this national security law, um, no one is safe there. And you know, we actually saw in the last few weeks young people fleeing Hong Kong in boats trying to escape to Taiwan. They got caught and they've now been held um, for several weeks without any communication with their families um, and taken to mainland China, which is, you know, there is no justice in mainland China. So people who went from having a life a bit similar to us here in Australia, in Hong Kong, um, and now living under the full, you know, Communist Party authoritarian rule in many ways. Yeah, it's a huge change, a huge shift, and I suppose it's been coming, as you say, even last year you went to Hong Kong and you wouldn't now. What about journalists and bloggers in China uh, who um, born and bred um, um, have always lived in China? They're taking enormous risks, I understand, to investigate and report on stories and sensitive stories. What, what risks are they facing there at the moment, Sophie? Oh, look, huge risks, and this is really at the top of our concern at Human Rights Watch because, you know, the Chinese journalists don't have a foreign embassy that they can turn to, that they can hide in, and uh, they've borne the brunt of this repressive system for many years now, and China is actually the world's leading jailer of journalists. So there's at least 48 behind bars, and they're only the ones that we know of. And, and just in the last few months, you know, five Chinese citizen journalists um, were forcibly disappeared because they dared to write about what was happening in Wuhan when the coronavirus first broke out. And, you know, that, that's just one instance of, of dozens that you hear about um, coming out of China each year of people who dare to stand up to the Communist Party, dare to tell the truth about what happens, and, you know, they, they get locked up. So really, you know, we've, we've heard about the foreign journalists, but we're not really hearing enough about these brave Chinese journalists who have no escape. And, you know, what, what happens when you disappear or are charged with something in China? Um, the conviction rate um, for those accused of a crime is 99%. So there really is no justice system there. And this is really concerning when you think of the arrests of recent um, Chinese Australians. Um, you mentioned Chung Lei, um, the journalist working for the Chinese state broadcaster who several weeks ago, was disappeared. She's being held in conditions that have been described as solitary confinement. The lights are left on, you know, 24 hours a day. And now we've heard from the Chinese Foreign Ministry last week that they um, described her case as a national security case. Um, very concerning. You know, she has two children in Australia. There's another guy who, um, you know, we're really worried about at Human Rights Watch. His name is Dr Yang Hengjun, and he's an Australian citizen. He... he Years ago, worked for the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs, but then he went and worked in business and wrote um, spy novels, actually. But then when he went back to China for a visit um, with his family in January 2019, they detained him. And, you know, he, he, he's been interrogated. He's, the reports are more than 300 times handcuffed and blindfolded, you know, for, um, you know, lights on again 24 hours a day, reports that he sleeps on a wooden platform, only allowed to shower twice a week. I mean, you know, this Australian citizen is sitting there now and has been sitting there in detention since January 2019. And, yeah, it's, it's incredibly alarming. We're speaking with Sophie McNeil, Australian researcher at Human Rights Watch, all about the recent news that the last remaining Australian journalist working for an Australian media organisation uh, left China. And it's the first time since the mid-1970s that there's been no representation from Australian media organisations in the country 
country. And I'm interested in your perspective on what, uh, I guess, mechanisms or approaches the Australian government should make in relation to these types of human rights abuses, um, but also those involving Australians and, and Australian journalists. Because we've heard about quiet diplomacy in relation to, for example, the imprisonment of, um, of the Melbourne academic, Kylie Moore Gilbert, and, and the need to kind of let these types of conversations happen behind closed doors. But there's also been calls for Australia to be a little bit more assertive on these types of issues. What is the best course of action that the government should be taking? Well, what Human Rights Watch has said is that we do want the government to speak out. You know, these cases are political and we think that they really demand a political response. Um, and we, we think that the Australian government has tried quiet diplomacy and we haven't seen any results. So what we actually are calling on is for the, the, the government to, to use its position at the UN Human Rights Council. So this is a position we only have till the end of the year. We've, we've been on it the last few years. It's our one last big opportunity to use that position we have at the UN Human Rights Council and call for greater scrutiny on China and what Human Rights Watch and a whole bunch of other NGOs around the world, you know, UN bodies, Amnesty International, we've all signed up to this call saying we want a special session on China at the UN Human Rights Council. So there's, there's a lot of concern that China is using the UN system to undermine human rights, not just at not just at home in China, but around the world. And so we believe that this needs to be debated, talked about, and that the time for quiet diplomacy is really over. And you've written, um, well, Human Rights Watch has highlighted that the United Nations human rights experts have issued a joint statement on China already um, and with regards to Xinjiang, Hong Kong, Tibet, and also suppression of COVID-19-related information. And we did see the Australian government speak out, particularly around the origins of the pandemic. And in some ways, Sophie, it seems that, there, that um, there's been you know, repercussions for Australia speaking out, but have you got a sense that the government government is still feeling bold about doing so? Look, I mean, Australia is an incredibly difficult position. We have, have a huge trade relationship with China, but I think what the Australian government is waking up to, and increasingly Australians, is, is just what kind of country China is under the rule of Xi Jinping. I mean, what, what I'm always careful about is saying the Communist Party, um, you know, not the Chinese people. We have to remember that, you know, that they are also suffering this rule. So, you know, there has been a lot of rhetoric in Australia. I think some of it has been quite damaging by some, um, uh, you know, politicians where, uh, you know, they talk about the Chinese and there's this fear, um, you know, of, of, you know, that it's, it's played up. What, what I think we need to be really careful in distinguishing is saying, you know, it is the Communist Party and authoritarian dictatorship that doesn't respect their own people. Um, the Chinese people are our friends. Chinese Australians are our friends. You know, we, there's been a really disturbing rise in racism in Australia some of it related to the COVID-19, that is really alarming. Um, but, I, but as a whole, you know, we really do need to wake up to what is happening under Xi Jinping and the human rights abuses that are going on, not, not, not just in China, but what they, how they are using the UN system to undermine democracy around the world. And how concerned are you about our access to credible information given the recent crackdowns on not just Australian journalists but um, other Chinese journalists, you know, doing their best to make public some of those issues and, and really serious um, abrogations of, of human rights in the country currently? Look, it, it's so concerning. And with the story of Xinjiang, when we were banned from getting visas and weren't allowed in, what 
we turned to was um, like satellite imagery. You know, if you can't actually go into a country and verify what's happening, how do you prove what's going on? So we, we basically spent um, hours on Google Earth, um, hours and hours and hours, looking at all of these detention sites. And, and verifying the, the fact that these massive prison camps are being built. Um, we had people's testimony, but then we were able to verify that testimony by looking on the satellite at these massive new prisons that had been built all around that part, those parts of China. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, this is the kind of reporting I had to do in the Middle East when it was too dangerous to go to places or when I couldn't get visas. Um, you know, in Syria, when things happened, you had to do a lot of work on satellites and verifying social media interviews. And it's really sad think that now this is increasingly what's happening, not just in a country like China, but more in our region. So it's really difficult for journalists to get visas now to a country like Indonesia. That's become really hard to access. We recently had Australian journalists thrown out of Malaysia, award-winning um, reporter for Al Jazeera, Drew Ambrose, his name is, um, was just forced to leave, given a couple of days' notice to get on a plane and get out of there because they didn't like his reporting. So it's really concerning for press freedom to look around our region, not just China, but some of these other countries, and just see that, that it's very difficult um, for us to work on the ground, researchers and journalists and human rights activists. And what we're going to have to do is really refine our skills at covering these countries remotely, using things like open source information, satellite imagery, um, so that we, you know, just because we can't get in is not a reason for us to just, you know, kind of shrug our shoulders and turn away. It's so important this stuff is talked about. So we will just have to get a bit cleverer and smarter um, as to how we do our work, I think, unfortunately. Yeah, the um, age of the data journalist. Sophie, um, it's really great to have you on Triple R. We know you have to go um, and all the best with your work at Human Rights Watch. Oh, thanks so much for having me on and a big shout out to everyone in Melbourne. Good luck. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. thanks. Appreciate it. Sophie McNeil, uh, Human Rights Watch researcher and um, you'd know her voice um, if you have watched Four Corners. Uh, she's done some excellent reports there and also a former Middle East correspondent for the ABC. She's worked elsewhere, won multiple Walkley Awards and uh, now over there at Human Rights Watch. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. COVID-19 has, of course, changed the situation for renters and for landlords in Melbourne. To speak more about how renters in particular, um, those faring, um, those in vulnerable housing are faring, um, we've got Irene Salidas-Noyce with us. She's Secretary of the Renters and Housing Union, um, which has set up in the wake of the pandemic. And Irene, it's really great to have you on Triple R. Hey, Dylan Kalia. Thank you so much for having me on. It's great to be here. And I mean, we've seen a whole range of measures come in um, because of the pandemic and the shutdown of the economy, Irene, including a ban on evictions, uh, on rent increases, and we've seen new protections come in for victims and survivors of family violence. And there's a whole range of other things available to renters, and we've seen supports also available to landlord. How do you, how are you seeing these measures um, at the moment? How helpful have they been for those that you represent in? in vulnerable housing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the eviction moratorium and the legislation that you've mentioned has been really integral in helping renters uh, negotiate for what they need um, and to make sure that people can stay at home 
uh, during this pandemic. I think we were really excited to see, after all the efforts we put in, that that moratorium has now been extended into March, which is so needed, particularly with job seeker and job um, keeper cuts coming in this month. The idea that that moratorium would have ended in September was of real concern to us. So we're glad to see it extended. But there are some measures um, and there's more that needs to be done because people are still being pressured to leave their homes and there are still some um, grounds for landlords to be able to terminate tenancies. So if people are in those situations, we really want to speak to you and to get in touch with us. Um, But, yeah, in terms of those protections, we're really glad to see that they're there for... for, um, for next year. The idea of negotiating a rental reduction is something that a lot of tenants wouldn't be very familiar with or might sort of enter into with quite a lot of trepidation. How have those types of negotiations gone based on the types of people you've spoken to um, through your organisation? Yeah, it's been an interesting one and it's um, a completely new thing that's, that's happened. I think in general negotiations are incredibly challenging for, for renters because we don't have a representative like a representative just like a landlord does with an agent usually um, many of our members have got successful reductions to 30% of their income which has been really really needed and we've gone back to agents who pressured deferrals on tenants instead of reductions and actually got those members reductions that they need um, And we've also been able to help renters negotiate uh, rather than getting maybe $10 off a month. We've we've been able to help them get what they need, which is, I think, a really important aspect of these negotiations, particularly when income is so low and people are just, you know, out of work so much at the moment. Um, Having a union that's able to be there with, with renters and work on what people need has been really integral in the process. And, um, you know, a lot of the time, landlords will be far more um, receptive to that than real estate agents have been. We've noticed that a lot of the real estate agents have pressured deferrals or given sort of really concerning misinformation around the process. And the REOV recently, last week, announced that they're not going to be helping anyone with um, negotiations, which is a real worry because it's part of their you know, part of coming to the table um, is to help facilitate those negotiations. So we're really, really helping a lot of people to make sure they can have access to the process, know what their rights are and get what they need. I actually wasn't aware of that, Irene, that some agents aren't um, participating in those negotiations. Is it required that they, they do participate? Absolutely, yeah. The government, when announcing the moratorium, said, you know, uh, we all need to be in this together and the guidelines and the legislation have outlined what uh, real estate agents and landlords need to do um, as part of that process. So it is, um, as far as we can tell, a breach of, of consumer law and a bunch of other laws if people who work at agencies are not actually coming to the table that way and we really hope that um that that you know that that's changed but we can't rely on it so we need to make sure we're there for renters and each other um 
to make sure we can get what we need in the process. Yeah, and there are a whole range of resources on the Consumer Affairs Victoria websites in relation to how landlords and tenants can kind of seek to negotiate rental reductions and, and how the moratorium on evictions works and all that sort of stuff. But for many people who live in share houses, I imagine there's quite a mixed bag in their experience throughout the pandemic where some might have um, even potentially had an increase in, in their income or had no real impact on their work, whereas others might have been hit really substantially or maybe, uh, you know, the international students or temporary migrants who can't access some of those mm-hmm. government supports. How does it actually work at the negotiating stage when there's a real diversity of experience among people who might live within a single household? It's a really good question and it raises a huge um, a huge thing for us as over 2 million people who haven't received income support um, and we've been helping uh, a lot of international students um, through the process. There's a lot of confusion and grey areas around share houses and a huge issue and reason for that is that there's not much in the Residential Tenancies Act that actually talks about share housing, um, even though it's the most common way that, you know, literally a million renters live in Victoria. Um, So for us, it's our, our recommended way of going about that is to make sure that um, a household can organise together for what they need as a household. And ideally, we end up with something as a house that you know benefits each of those individual renters together. Um, often that might not be what ends up happening. So um, as long as we have each other's support, outside of that house as well in terms of renters working with each other, um, we can end up getting what people need to stay at home. But, yeah, it is a really complex situation and more rights are needed and more, you know, acknowledgement of um, share housing is needed. If people haven't had any change in their income, they could still be affected by those other tenants that they live with. Uh, not, you know, not being protected or, or getting a needed reduction. So we have a shared liability there and we therefore need shared protections. That's really interesting and I want to sort of hang there a little because I think there is a lot of information from online um, and other forums and government websites and so forth for those in in more sort of straight up situations than those in share housing. What about for those people that might not be on a lease or any, are they, um, I know that happens to people for various reasons, they might live with a partner who's on the lease but they're not on it, things like that. Uh, Is that a complex situation too for individuals to find themselves in right now when they might be needing to ask for um, supports uh, but kind of might not exist um, on, on a lease? It's, yeah, it's another area where there needs to be more clear legislation around that. And if people are in those situations, again, really, really do get in touch with us. Um, our email is organised at rahu.org.au. With, with those kinds of tenancies, there's still a way to establish and show that you are renting there. Um, just because you don't have a lease doesn't mean you have you don't have an informal one, and you still have the rights and protections of being a renter, um, even in an informal lease. But the process is a bit more, you know, complicated. Um, so it's really important to to yeah get in touch with us if you're in that situation. 
And as part of the supports that the Victorian government's made available, there are rental relief grants which can be accessed by, I understand, tenants and landlords, and that's been increased. And we know that you know a whole range of people are suffering at the moment with the, particularly the stage four lockdowns in Melbourne, and, and business has been hit really hard and that sort of thing. What's your sense of kind of how the interconnectedness of landlords and tenants and the ability for landlords to actually you know take the hit of a rental reduction in these times when they might have a whole range of other things that are a bit up in the air at the moment that makes their financial situation a little bit tenuous too? Yeah, I mean, the pandemic's really, really shown um, a huge kind of um, longer-standing issue, I think. Um, the You know, the right to a home has really come out of this pandemic as being such an important thing. And we can't really treat that as a return on an investment the way that the market has has pushed. Um, We understand that, you know, everyone's doing it tough at this time and there's, you know, a lot of issues that are coming into play. um, But, you know, renters are, by 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 their fact that they're renters, are on the front line of, of housing precarity. So with with a house um, that you know, with landlords having a second home, that investment can run at a loss, and it would have an impact on those people. But in saying that, there are many many relief measures out there that the government has put in place, including land tax relief, um, paying zero land tax for, for empty investment properties, as we found out recently, and the aid that has come about in Victoria. Out of the $500 million, 420 of that went straight to landlords and the other remaining $80 million went to landlords through uh, rent reductions that um, tenants had received. So there's many ways of, of um, landlords accessing relief. The issue for us is that that doesn't always mean that renters have been given that as well. So if they've negotiated a small reduction, some some came to us when they only had been offered a $10 reduction in a month, the landlord is still able to get a land tax relief and the rent relief grant um, straight to their pocket as well. So for us, it's an issue of first and foremost, being able to stay at home even when your income has completely gone and also to know that they have a home um, rather than having a second or third investment property. Mm. So if that if that kind of makes sense, um, we really can't get tricked into internalising market logic when we're talking about human survival, particularly through this pandemic and the human right to a home. Yeah, there's so many things that we're, we're thinking about, um, so many of these kind of um, accepted norms that we are re- rethinking in this period. And I wonder, I mean, you, your uh, organisation, Arini um, Renters and Housing Union, set up uh, because of the pandemic. Um, I mean, how are you seeing things playing out over the longer term, <clears throat> excuse me, longer term, especially as we see the ramping down of some of the, the income support coming from the federal government and also these measures that uh, at the moment are set to end in May that, that support um, renters and landlords? Absolutely. Um, for us, it's been a, re- a really amazing opportunity in this pandemic to organise for renters' rights, and and they're much, much needed um, considering the power imbalance that's existed for so long. In the long term, we really want to see that power imbalance shift back towards the rights that we have 
at home. Um, you know, the idea of having maintenance outstanding or urgent repairs being needed or having the threat and pressure from real estate agents um, to threaten us out of the home or to pressure us out of one um, those kinds of issues are long-standing. And to give an example, um, when it comes to, to VCAT, uh, the tribunal for, for renters and residential tenancies, um, a lot of the time, many renters in the past haven't even turned up to their hearing. And that's a huge, like, it's a really understanding situation. It's really stressful, it's quite scary. And the prospect of being evicted um, often means that renters will just not turn up and... Um, the you know the ability to have representation there is difficult for them. So it's you know it, it, to to borrow a, a union phrase, um, if you don't fight, you lose. And for a lot of renters, the ability to have that to have that um, to stand up for themselves in those situations is really daunting. So what we want to see in the long term is better representation, um, being able to learn and access our rights and be able to stand up for ourselves in situations where our rights are being breached. Um, we have 10 demands that we'll be pushing in the long term as well. And, you know, that's part of, that's part of that longer term project for us. Yeah, it feels like yet another area where things have been done quite differently over the next three, three months, uh, past few months, sorry, and you wonder whether some of those uh, sort of negotiation mechanisms and, and the rental supports that have been delivered quite quickly could be supported and, and furthered into the future too. If there are people listening who might be wanting to access some of your assistance, Irene, how can they best get in touch? Yeah, it'd be great to, to hear from folks. Our website is rahurahu.org.au uh, uh, and we're experiencing a huge number of people starting up to join um, at the moment, so it's great if you wanted to go to our website. We've got our resources and releases there. Otherwise, you can email us at organise, with an S, um, at rahu.org.au and speak directly with the caseworker and they can, yeah, get uh, be in touch with you through through the email. Um, but yeah, our ten demands are listed on our website as well as our three month COVID review, and um, that's a really good way to see just how COVID nineteen and the legislation has impacted us all as renters. Uh, thanks for being on Triple R, Irene. And um, it's not every day we uh, hear from a new union. So, um, yeah, it's been good to have um, your time. Uh, Absolutely. Thank you so much for having us on. Cheers, Carly. You're doing. And that was Irene Salidas Noyce. And uh, Renters and Housing Union is where she's the secretary. Triple R. And Don Driscoll, Professor of Terrestrial Ecology at Deakin University, has been part of a, a study to survey scientists working in government, universities and industry about their experiences of so-called scientific suppression. Um, their survey results appear to be incredibly concerning, um, especially as governments and society at large have the power to reduce biodiversity loss, but we need good information and targeted science to help us do this. And it's really great to have Don on Triple R, welcome, welcome. Um, it's great to have you here. Thanks for having me on. And um, your study indicated there was widespread suppression of scientific knowledge in Australia. Um, perhaps tell us about how you, you found this out and, and what your survey um, actually sought to find. So it, it's it's sort of co- common knowledge amongst ecologists that that the 
that our information is, is often not getting through to where it needs to get through. And, you know, you, you go to conferences and you talk to people and, and people tell you these horror stories of um, how they were how they either spoke out and then and then got in a lot of trouble for it or how they're too afraid to speak out be, because um, because they're either legally gagged or, or they're afraid of, of what might happen. So we decided to, to put together a survey um, to, to try to get a better handle on what's actually going on out there. And the survey involved um, asking ecologists from around Australia, and that includes ecologists working in policy or uh, in universities or in uh, in consultancies or environmental NGOs, so a broad range of ecologists, what they what sort of experiences they're having in terms of science suppression, uh, in terms of what was motivating them to, to avoid speaking out, what happened to them if they did speak out, and what they thought the consequences of not speaking out was going to be. And I guess when you go into a study such as this, you're, of course, as an academic, supposed to keep an open mind and, and see what the results bring in. But you, I imagine, as you know, an ecologist yourself working in a university, have a bit of a, a hunch as to why people might be a bit reluctant to communicate their research and so on did you were you at all surprised in the results uh, when they came in based on your experience uh, in some ways yes in some ways no so we expected that um, our government respondents would would say that they were they were they had their con- communication capacity substantially constrained because of their um, codes of conduct within their work but also because of pressures from the from their superiors within the department um, and, that, and that's actually what we observed, what, what people reported um, but what was surprising was the university areas where um, over 70% of our university respondents said they were um, afraid to speak out because essentially they were afraid of how they'd be represented by the media. Yeah, and that, that's interesting. I mean, are there any particular examples that come to mind where someone's research has been sort of wildly misrepresented that's led to them potentially, you know, being embarrassed and, and having to explain themselves again? Well, uh, nothing was reported in our survey along those lines, uh, but I think it's just a, a general fear of... It's a sort of a clash of, um, of standards. Like, in, you know, when you write a scientific paper, um, everything... All the I's have to be dotted and T's crossed. Mm. You know, everything has to be absolutely right and and accurate. Um, whereas um, in the when you're presenting to the media, you know you, you you get all your facts right, but you might stumble a bit, and maybe the media will put a different, slightly different spin on it to what you would have preferred. And I, and I think that um, so I think there's a a bit of a lesson there for academics in terms of understanding better what how the media works but also for uh, the media to to sort of appreciate that academics have a certain way of presenting information so that yeah they there needs to be better communication, I guess, between those groups. Yeah, it's interesting um, um, speaking about that, Dom, because I wonder, I mean, when I was reading the results of your survey, uh, I was thinking straight away of climate change reporting in Australia, and that has been particularly politicised in Australia. Is that uh, just one aspect of the kinds of um, scientific suppression that was coming through in the survey, do you think? Or or are we really looking at a whole range of different scenarios where um, scientists may be, for whatever reason, not speaking out about what they've found. Yeah, so there's a whole range of topics that, that were being suppressed and certainly climate change was uh, up there with um, with logging for, for our government respondents. Um, but the, 
uh, threatened species are actually the topic that was most commonly suppressed, uh, particularly for government and and industry. Uh, and that's a that's a big concern. Um, because you know our you know the, our industry respondents are our environmental consultants, and if they're saying that information about our threatened species that they're putting into their reports isn't getting through to the decision makers, and th- that is a big concern, um, they're also talking about saying that they had information suppressed in relation to mining impacts and land clearing. So it looks like our environmental impact assessment process really is uh, is being undermined by um, by having consultants unable to speak the truth and having that information suppressed through that EIS process. Yeah, and when we're talking about information being suppressed, I mean, I know there's a diversity of experiences that are reported in this survey, but is it the case that people are actually communicating certain uh, research and, and studies to perhaps superiors within government departments and that is being rejected or is it that they're not being encouraged to undertake certain research? What do we actually mean in, when we talk about suppression? So it's it, 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 well, it happens. It happens in a range of points. So um, some of, in some cases, communications are banned altogether. So, and we most commonly that banning happens for traditional and social media. Um, but there's also instances where internal communications were banned, and 15% of our respondents said that. But also conference presentations and journal papers. So although those things happen more rarely, they're actually that's quite a severe level of suppression to have your journal paper or your conference presentation banned. And we we saw that happen in New South Wales with um, an academic banned from coming to a conference on feral horses um, because of because it was politically sensitive in that state. Um, the internal communications ones is also particularly worrying. Like this is information not getting from sort of the, the coalface of the you know policy officer through to the you know minister's office who has to make the decision. Somewhere along the way, these internal communications are being modified or or completely prohibited, uh, and so there's yeah the flow of information is is broken down. Yeah, that's really concerning, isn't it? Because, I mean, you can understand in some respects why there might be some restrictions on what employees, whether of government or or private industry, for example, are allowed to speak out on, you know, based on the position they might hold. Um, And your paper references a high court ruling um, that's found that the government was within its rights to dismiss a public servant who published posts on social media that were highly critical of, of the government's asylum policy. And now that's quite a different issue. But on the other hand scientists are recruited for these types of government positions based on their expertise and and one would hope that they could communicate that science openly to best inform the public and the government decision making process yeah well the it's yeah so it's so it's crucial that the the government gets the information they need to make the right decision that's not being filtered but also it's it is important that it gets to the public because uh that's fundamental to democracy you know if people don't know how their governments are performing in terms of protecting or damaging the environment, then they can't make an informed choice when they go to vote. Uh, So, yes, it's really important that this information is made publicly available. And at the moment, a lot of of this information in in these uh, particularly sensitive areas, like impacts of mining or logging or climate change, uh, threatened species, uh, just isn't getting through. 
Yeah, and I mean, even if it's not getting through, our records aren't very good with regards to species extinction and land clearing and protection of Aboriginal heritage sites, things like this. We know that we're not performing hugely great in Australia, so that amount of information is getting through. But do you think this um, scientific suppression that your survey uncovered, Don, is playing into our poor performance? Yeah, well, and that's partly what's motivated um, the Ecological Society of Australia to to look at to undertake this research and to try to bring about change because we we do think it it contributes to um, to yeah, the decline of biodiversity and our inability to turn that around. Um, yeah, and uh, I mean, uh, as well as that too, I mean, recently we've had governments propose changes to the EPBC Act, and I know there's been some criticisms of what's been proposed so far in terms of the um, sort of investing states with, with uh, decision-making responsibilities and not necessarily having the protections in place that were uh, recommended as part of the 10-year review. We've also heard the government talk about cutting green tape as, as part of this process. I mean, how can we improve the, the current state of things to make sure that there are better decisions made based on scientific evidence and that that, that research is absolutely um, sort of properly considered and, and listened to by the government? Yeah, well, Graeme Samuel's report you know, recommended an independent environmental agency to, to make sure that the law is actually being followed um, in, in handing some power to the states to, to deal with matters of national environmental significance. Uh, and, and that's been um, rejected by the government, uh, but but it really is absolutely critical. It's like a it's it's the only way we're really going to get on top of this science suppression and a whole range of other problems with our uh, the way we manage our environment is to have that independent environmental agency. So an agency that um, doesn't report to the minister but reports to a. a uh, sort of non-partisan committee that's got adequate funding uh, and and that the you know commissioners in, involved with that agency uh, have security of tenure so they don't get turnover every time there's an election. So yeah. that sort of independent... Sorry. No, no, no sorry, continue. So that, yeah, that sort of independent agency um, would be able to... Uh, manage those environmental impact assessments so a consultant instead of being employed by the mining company which is where this uh, basically corruption comes in um, instead of being employed by the people doing the damage they'd be employed by these agency um, to go and do the environmental assessment then we could have more confidence in what they were actually reporting back to government uh, and it would also avoid the problems that are happening within agencies at the moment where you have um, political appointments uh, at the top end of the agency as well as uh, influence from ministerial offices that can prevent the flow of information right through to the minister. And, and do you think that would, um, I mean, what you were saying there with regards to having an independent agency at the moment, uh, it is a situation in, I, I don't know if it's all states and territories where a company can essentially pick its own person in order to do the environmental assessments. Uh, is this going to deal with the, some of the scientific suppression you found in other forums, not just in, in industry, but in, in university government as well as NGOs and other forums? So the independent agency, I think, would would really help to solve this problem within government uh, and 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 industry. But for yeah, universities, uh, universities need to take some different approaches, including um, looking at their academic freedom policies and having really strong academic freedom policies. And you, you know, some 
it, we found evidence in the survey that some universities are actually um, so when a when a so for example when a when an academic wanted to write an article for the conversation about a mining company the university didn't give permission to do that. I because, found that really alarming that that yeah. quote from that study. Yeah, they, they, they wouldn't. They, yeah, they they weren't able to put that conversation article out because the university was taking money from the mining company. So we really need to, um, the universities need to have a good look at themselves and, so, and uphold academic freedom over uh, accepting uh, funding from, from certain sources. Yeah, and I guess one other side to this as well is uh, sort of building... Um, uh, ecologists and, and conservationists media experience as well. Is there an argument to be made for enhancing um, people's confidence in uh, kind of publicising their research and studies more widely and, and feeling confident with, with doing that? Oh yeah, absolutely. So the, um, the Ecological Society of Australia plans to hold some additional training, training workshops at our annual conferences. Um, uh, the other response from the Ecological Society has been to uh, establish a, a website where people can load up their, um, anonymously, they can load up their accounts of um, ongoing suppression. Uh, and documenting this is, is quite an important important response for us to take because that, that way we can continue to tell government, you know, this is the size of the problem, these are the kinds of uh, things that are going on and we really need to take some action to try to fix them. Well, that sounds really bold and um, we look forward to seeing how that evolves. Thanks, Don, for sharing your survey findings and also these um, broader stories with us on Triple R this morning. really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Don Driscoll, um, he, you can find him over at Deakin University where he's Professor of Terrestrial Ecology and he's actually written an article for the conversation um, on this issue and uh, if you want to find out more information, you can find him as an author there and, um, and read that article. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.